It's time to eat. Get in my belly! Sit down and get ready to consume an abundance of fantasy football knowledge from Ross Tucker and Evan Silva. Me so hungry. On the Fantasy Feast Eaten Podcast. Yeah, let's eat, baby! It is the Fantasy Feast Eaten Podcast. And it's presented, as always, by BetOnline.ag because they are your online sportsbook experts. You guys know about that promo code PODCAST1 to get the 50% sign-up bonus. You also know about Evan Silva, the greatest fantasy mind of the 21st century. Check him out on Twitter, at Evan Silva. He's obviously Roto World's finest. My name is Ross Tucker, former NFL offensive lineman, five teams, seven years, classic journeyman. Now I got a bunch of podcasts that I love Like this one, like Even Money, where we went over the NFC season win totals yesterday. If you want to know who we think is going to go over, under, that was fun. Steve and I, Steve Fezzik, the only two-time winner of the Westgate Super Contest, he and I agreed on a lot of them, which I guess is good for you guys, and hopefully that ends up being the case. And then, of course, the Ross Tucker Football Podcast. Greg Cosell will break down the linebackers on Friday's episode. Today, it was interesting to get Andrew Brandt's perspective on the Russell Wilson contract deadline, as well as the Packers' dysfunction, Aaron Rodgers. Highly encourage you to check out today's Ross Tucker Football Podcast. You can hit me up on Twitter and Instagram at Ross Tucker NFL, or if you're a Facebook dude, facebook.com slash Ross Tucker NFL. Can't tell you how much we appreciate any type of retweets you guys ever give us. It's huge. It really is. It's absolutely huge. And it is much appreciated to help us spread the word. Speaking of spreading the word, I'm helping to spread the word about myfrontpagestory.com because I invested in it and because I know the guys running it and because it's by far the best Mother's Day gift I've ever heard of. These are like newspaper dudes, journalists. They interview you for 10 minutes about your mom or if you want to get one for your wife who's a mother, they will do it. They write the story. It's amazing. Send it to you. You frame it. Hand it to your wife or your mom. And say, hey, I just want to do something really special this year. So I had a story written about you. Are you kidding me? A story written about you? Tell me that's not the best thing you can ever say that to your mom or your wife, giving them a gift. They cry, you win, myfrontpagestory.com. Really excited about today's guest. I tell you what, Evan's been on fire with the guests he's been bringing to the Fantasy Feast podcast Today, it's Greg Gabriel. Encourage you to follow him on Twitter, at Greg Gabe. 30 years in the NFL scouting, nine years as the scouting director of the Chicago Bears. You read him at ProFootballWeekly.com. He's all over 670 The Score and 670thescore.com. And obviously a very, very plugged-in guy. And Greg, I got a story for you. So where were you in 2001? Do you remember? The draft of 2001, I was with the Giants. That was my last draft. And then right after that draft, I went to Chicago as the um, college scouting director. You know, Jerry Angelo came in as, as the general manager. 
Got it. So I can't remember, but I, I think, and I might be wrong about this, but I was such a bottom-of-the-barrel uh, prospect that my agent, Joe Linta, told me to send, like, v- yeah, I know, I know, told me to send VHS highlight tapes, and he gave me, like, a list of, like, 10 to 15 people that were kind of like his guys, right? And and I remember you were on there. I couldn't remember if it was the Bears or the Giants, but Joe uh, was a guy that you were a guy that Joe really respected. So I sent it out. And um, what's funny is Mike Tice came to work us out at Princeton, a couple offensive linemen. He's like, I got your tape. I appreciate it. He's like, but we don't. We don't have VHS VCRs. We have we have beta or whatever they had at the time. He's like, so I got your package, but I didn't get a chance to actually watch your video. That's the problem with it. I was like, oh, okay, that's good to know now. And then um, I do remember when I was getting signed, I couldn't remember where you were, Greg, but the only two teams that showed any interest in signing me, uh, three, I should say, after the draft, was the Redskins, the Bears, and I didn't know if you were there yet or not, and the Cincinnati Bengals, who called me in the first round. That was pretty funny. I was like, I'm ready. I'm ready to be a Bengal. Um, so I couldn't remember well, if you were in Chicago then, and you were the one saying, yeah, let's sign him or not. Well, back then, Bengals, wasn't Paul Alexander the line coach in 01? He, I, I think he was. he was. Yeah, I think he was. I got calls from John Garrett, who was – uh, on the staff there and was a Princeton guy, as well as Frank Verducci, who was the tight end coach and the assistant offensive line coach. Those are the only two calls I got during the draft, two different Bengals calls. Um, you know, other than that, my agent Joe told me that the Redskins might sign me and that the Bears might sign me. So I waited. It was like an hour after the draft. Um, and I had actually, like, given up hope because I was that bottom of the barrel. And then I came back to my dorm room. And Joe's like, where have you been? I've been calling you. I'm like, you said if they didn't call after the draft, it wouldn't be good. He's like, well, you signed with the Redskins. He's like, you're going. I'm like, oh, awesome. Like, I was that low, Greg. People say, were you upset you didn't get drafted? I was like, no, I knew I wouldn't get drafted. I was just hoping to get signed. Yeah, but the key is you played in the league. That That's the important part. Now, you know, going back to the 0-1 draft, I, I was with the Giants for the draft and then immediately after, during, and, and most of the, college free agent signings are are done within hours of the draft being completed then you have some guys usually have a rookie mini camp that next weekend and and we stuck around for that and then it was probably three weeks later that we went to chicago and you know got that job there jerry got uh uh given the job awarded the job on like on a monday and then the following day I was in Chicago as the college director, so it would have been after all the the undrafted free agent stuff went on, and, and the roster in Chicago had then was pretty much set with what the previous group had done, you know, right after the draft. Got it. So uh, the the thing that's interesting is that, um, and this is a little personal stuff, and I'll let Evan dive in. I know he's got a bunch of questions for you, but. Um, you know, there had not been an, a, a Princeton guy go to the NFL since like Keith Elias in 93. So it had been eight years. And meanwhile, uh, Dennis Norman got drafted by the Seattle Seahawks. I signed with the Redskins. And uh, the Giants, where you were, actually signed my college roommate, John Ravishay, 
But when he got there for the rookie minicamp or first minicamp or whatever, um, he, you guys failed him on his physical. So he ended up having his, you know, failed on his physical and ended up signing with the Browns or whatever. So there was actually three of us. What is, uh, how did you get started, Greg? What was your background to get into it in the first place? Well, I started off, you know, I, I didn't play at a high level. I played at uh, Division Three level, Canisius. You you played for the Bills, so you probably heard of Canisius. It's a, uh, uh, they dropped their football program when I was with the Bears, so I'm going to say around 2007, and they had played the, the league they were in was with um, uh, St. John's and, and, and Duquesne and, and uh, Marist and, and, and those schools, so it was Catholic schools that uh, were playing, you know, classification was non-scholarship 1AA, but trust me, it was Division three, and you know, and, and when I get out there, they had the, when I got out of college in 1974. So I mean, there was no classifications back then. It was big school, little school, and I went on and I played minor league football for the next eight years. So through the 1981 season, during that 81 season, uh, the guy who was the head coach of our team, uh, a man by the name of Gene Zinni, passed away about two or three years ago. Uh, he was working part-time for Buffalo, and Buffalo was in a combine. At that time, there was three different combines. There was National Scouting, Blesto, and Quadra. And Quadra was Buffalo, Seattle, San Francisco, and Dallas. And what that combine did, and Gil Brandt was, was really the, the leader of that combine, uh, they hired, each team hired local guys to view film and back then we were looking at film in fact i tweeted out about a few months ago it was my i still have my old 16 millimeter kodak projector that we used to watch film on and and which was just you know compared to what you do now it was awful but that's you know how you did things but anyway i i graded film for them so the reports went out to all four clubs and buffalo would send me to to you know I'll say local games, Syracuse, Colgate, sometimes down to Pitt, maybe Kent State or something like that on the weekends, but I wasn't traveling far. It was, you know, I could go to and from in in the same day. So I did that through the 84 draft, and right after the 84 draft, uh, I went to national scouting and only spent the fall of 84 with them. And the Giants at the the combine meetings, the – national scouting meetings in December. The Giants hired me there and was there till 01, then to the Bears. Wow, that is awesome, Greg. And obviously you got a lot of stuff going now. Um, Strong opinions on Twitter, which are great and excellent information. I know Evan's a big fan and has uh, a bunch of questions he wants to pepper you with. Go ahead, Evan. Awesome, awesome. Greg, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing good. Good, good. Um, well, was it two days ago you published an article about kind of a learning experience that you witnessed inside the Giants organization in 1996? And uh, anyone can read that article on Pro Football Weekly. Uh, it's free for, for anyone to read. It's a great story. Are there any details to that story that you maybe didn't put into print and, and let the public know about that maybe you could expand on here? 
Well, I, I, obviously, you know, when you're writing an article, uh, online article, magazine article, whatever, you know, you, you can't go on forever. And that alone, I think we're around 16 or 1700 words. I mean, the, I, I mentioned that 11 hour period and that was over two days that we were arguing about Simeon Rice and to say that it got heated might have been an understatement. So, um, you know, but, and, and it was, which I didn't want to put in the article, but just, it was like a war for lack of a better word between the personnel department and the coaching staff. And that was Reeves was under pressure. It was his last year he coached the giants and, uh, you know, he was so used to having his own way when he was at Denver because basically he was the head coach general manager. And he, you know, it, as time went on, this was, I think, his third or fourth draft with, with the Giants. He just wanted to do it his way, and, and he was going to let his feelings be known. And, and the player we wanted was, was Simeon Rice. We ended up not getting him. Uh but he was just adamant that, that he didn't want Simeon Rice. And to fast forward the story, the Cardinals took Rice with the, I think it was the third pick in the draft uh, that year. We had the fifth pick. And we had to play Arizona. And the offensive line coach, uh, you know, on Tuesday, you know, Mondays and, and Tuesdays, the coaches are, are – locked up in, in, in their meeting rooms and in their offices, uh, going over tape of the, the upcoming opponent, putting together a game plan. Well, as they're getting ready to meet for the offensive game plan meeting on, on Tuesday afternoon, the offensive line coach goes to Reeves and he says, Dan, he said, we're going to either have to keep the tight end in or use the back to chip on Simeon Rice or he's going to kill the quarterback. And... Hit, hit a bad nerve with, with Reeves. He got irate, uh, and he said, and because this is a, a family podcast, I won't swear, but basically he said that SOB couldn't play back there in the draft, and he can't play now. You block him with one guy. My coach said, okay, yeah, we'll do our best. Fast forward to Sunday for the game. Simeon Rice had two sacks, knocked out the quarterback before the first quarter was over. <laughs> so. see this is this is great stuff okay um excellent 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 story um i i really think you you got to write a book greg i've told you that before um that's got to be the next step are there are, are there any other particularly interesting stories you know from your career like that involving like the draft room or you know a draft debate an internal draft debate that stand out to you uh, that, that you could think of right now? Well, I, I think when I was with the Giants, there was more, and I'm not saying anything against the the Giant organization, one of the best in football, and I love all the people involved and, you know, close to the all the mirrors for a long time. Uh, I think in, in that time frame, you know, we had towards the end of Parcells' career with the Giants, which ended after uh, he resigned for medical reasons or a heart condition right after the 91 draft. Uh, I think in the last couple of years of uh, Parcells' 
uh, career with the Giants. Um, there were some good arguments, but you know, arguments are good. And that was one thing about George Young. George Young did not want a bunch of guys sitting in the room that say agreed with his opinion or agreed with Tom Boyster was the director of player personnel in the scouting department. You know, he said, if, if everybody's going to agree with me, then I don't need to hire any scouts. So he kind of wanted that contentiousness in, in the draft room or in the meeting room uh, and get everything out on the table uh, as far as your feelings for the player. And sometimes discussion would get a little heated. And then, as I mentioned before, uh, in the later part of uh, Dan Reeves' tenure as the head coach of the Giants, I think it got a little contentious to say the least. And obviously, you know, with the, the story about Rice and what I wrote up the other day, that, that was part of it. Uh, but after that, I think, you know, Jim Fossil followed Reeves as the head coach, and Jim was a, like a, a breath of fresh air as far as dealing uh, with him, him being the head coach. We got along great with the coaching staff and uh, just the back and forth between the coaching staff and the scouting department was excellent. It was just a lot more fun. I just, you know, in, in almost every draft I've been involved in, and it's been well over 30, it's always been fun. It's a fun day for the scouting department. It's a, it's a culmination of all the work they do for the previous 12 months, and it's supposed to be fun, but those last two drafts with Reeves, that was awful. You know, it's like you didn't even yeah. want to go uh, because there was just too much infighting going on, and it just wasn't fun to be part of that process or part of that situation. But other than that, you know, I got nothing but, but good things to say. Always good discussion. Um, one thing you learn in the evaluation business is that especially when you're on, on the scouting side and then, you know, I was nine years as a scouting director, you've got to, one of the things you've got to do is, is scout your own, so to speak, and learn what the strengths and weaknesses of your own staff is and what the, the strengths and weaknesses of the coaching staff is as far as being evaluators. Just because a guy is a, uh, a coach in the National Football League, and some longtime coaches, doesn't mean they're good at evaluators when it comes to scouting for the draft. They could be top-notch, top-five coaches at their position, but the evaluation part, they aren't quite as good at. Part of it is they don't want to be, or they don't want to do it. You know, it's work that they don't want to have to do, and they won't put the time and effort into it, or they just don't have you know, the proper acumen to really just dig into the tape and find the little traits. They'd rather have finished products. And I'm not trying to bang coaches in any way. It's just, mm -hmm. you know, the difference between a scout and a coach. You know, coaches are great teachers and they can get the guys play, but oftentimes when you get in the draft room, the coach wants a finished product. And, it's, and then you have, the, you know, the the jawing back and forth. And a lot of time it's friendly. It's saying, well, what the hell we need a coach for that? If he's a finished product, we don't need the coach. It's the same with, with what George said to us. You know, why do I need scouts if you're not going to argue with me and you're going to agree with me all the time? So yeah. it's, it's all part of the fun of the process. Uh, you know, when you're not there, you miss it uh, because it, it, it is so much fun. The, the camaraderie and the, and, and the back and forth between everybody is a lot of fun. So 
but you know, as far as stories, I mean, I could probably think of a thousand stories. It's just, you got to sit down and really get your mind working in that direction to, to think of individual ones. I told you up in the other day about the Parcel story after we um, drafted Dave Meggett. And Ross, you remember mm-hmm. Dave Meggett, I assume. And, of course. You know, of course. Yeah. And, and Bill was not a fan of, of smaller players. And Dave was like Tariq Cohen with the, with the bears right now, maybe a little more girth to him, but about five, six and a half, five, seven, 180, 590 pounds. Great player at Towson state, great return guy. And he could, and I went and worked him out probably a week before the draft and he ran a four, three, six or a four, three, seven on that rubber old rubber surface. They had, uh, on an indoor basketball arena or recreation arena over at Towson State. And uh, so obviously he was plenty fast enough, and we got to the fifth round, and this is the guy that the scouting staff wanted. And, and ourselves was adamant that he didn't want him because he was five foot six. And he really, in, in, in fairness to Bill, he didn't know anything about the player. And, and one thing about Bill Parcells is that. Bill wants you to fight for a player. If you're not going to fight, then he thinks the player is not good. So, you know, you better come up with some good reasons about why you want that player, how he can help the team, and why he's going to make the team a better team because you did draft him. So we went back and forth, and we make the pick, and he's pissed because he's only five foot six, and he just looks at us in disgust and kind of walks out of the room, goes down to his office. And a couple of minutes later, I got to make a pit stop. And it just happened to be the wrong guy at the wrong time in the hallway. Cause as I'm walking down the <laughs> hallway to the men's room and Bill's coming the other way back to the draft room. And so I'm the only one there. And he just lets the wrath out at me. And he just looks at me and goes, Gabriel, what the hell are you doing drafting a five-foot-six guy? Because you think this is a peanut <laughs> contest? This is the National Football League. And so he goes on for a couple of minutes, and all she can say is, yes, coach, you know, but we really like this guy. Well, the next morning he comes in, and we're getting ready for the um, – it's actually the, the, that was the last day of the draft. So it's the, the next morning, and we're finishing up free agency, un, you know, undrafted free agency and stuff, and – having some meetings and Bill goes, Hey guys, that little guy we drafted must be pretty good. And he goes, I got three calls last night to trade for him. I said, yeah, coach, that's what we tried to tell you for hours yesterday. So just little stories like that make the, the draft that much more interesting. That's cool. I, I like the story, especially about um, uh, George Young, how he would want like conflicting voices almost in the draft room together. It reminds me of a quote from Bill Walsh where uh, Bill Walsh said, you know, if we're not, or if we're all thinking the same, we're not thinking, you know? And so it's, I thought that's an interesting point that, you know, it it wasn't just a Bill Walsh thing. It was also a, a George Young thing. So having been involved with the NFL for many generations, Greg, um, what do you think about like where the league is headed right now? Uh, what are your, what are your thoughts on like analytics impacting the NFL? Just what do you think in general about the way that the league is headed right now? You know, it's a good question. And, uh, you know, I think the style of play, at least offensively 
is going in the direction of what we see in college, but with a lot more sophistication to it. And, and, and a lot of it has to do with the quarterbacks that the league is getting. This is the way these quarterbacks have been playing football uh, since they were in Little League. And so they've never played from under center or very rarely played from under center. They're always playing from a spread shotgun type formation. And, and uh, a lot of the the uh, route concept are half field read type things. And so because you're getting that and it can be very difficult to retrain them, so to speak, you know, you're the, the offenses in the NFL are going in that direction. And with the offenses going in that direction, obviously the defense has also got to go in that direction because you got to cover the guys. So, you know, the premium is on, quality defensive backs and now you're seeing you know when I first came into the league and, and started working for the Giants and we ran Parcells 3-4 defense Belichick was the defensive coordinator you know we wanted size speed guys and Lawrence Taylor was 6-3-250 Carol Banks was 6-4-255 this is when they came out of college you know Harry Carson was 6-1 about 250-255 playing one of the inside linebackers uh the other inside linebacker, Gary Reasons, was another guy, 6'3", 6'4", 255, 260. So you had these big guys. And when you had your size speed chart and you had speed, you know, you're looking at guys, you know, the, the, the standard that you wanted was for an inside backer about 4'8". Well, hell, you don't want a 4'8 guy now. He can't play, you know, because of what he's being asked to do on the defensive side of the ball as far as coverage. So now you got guys, and I'll use, you know, Roquan Smith, or you can use uh, Devin White in this year's draft. They're six feet, they're 235 pounds, and, and they're four or five guys. In some cases, faster than that. Devin Bush, you know, is 5'11 and a half, and he ran a 4'4'3. And so you're seeing these far more athletic guys on the defensive mm-hmm. side of the ball. Uh, the offenses are going, you know, gravitating towards these big, tall, power forward type wide receivers. And in order to cover them, you got to have tall corners. So you're seeing more and more tall corners come into the game. Some of them can't run as well as, as what we used to draft. You know, you used to have a minimum of a, a four, five, five, and you'd prefer faster. Uh, and now you're you're seeing some of these tall guys who might be between four five five and four six, but because of their height and their length, they can make up for that lack of of speed or or, or burst when it comes to covering. So I think that's you know a lot of the changes that we're seeing. It's just going in in, in that type of direction. Yeah, last year you nailed Baker Mayfield as the best quarterback in the draft. And that sort of bucked conventional wisdom, I thought, because for so long there has been a height requirement. He was just above the height requirement, if not below it, um, you know, right around uh, six foot. Where where do you stand on well, – kind of what led you to, to Baker Mayfield? And where do you stand on uh, Kyler Murray, who's even shorter than him, but does appear to have a lot of the traits beyond height that might lead to NFL success? Well, being I worked with Parcells for a number of years, and, and Bill was a believer that a guy should be a three-year starter, 
throw X amount of passes. I think the number was 900 passes, you know, career passes and uh, three-year starter in the league, 22 years old, uh, win a certain amount of games. You know, I, I'm old school. I admit I'm old school, but at, at, at the same time, because of the type of football we're playing in the league now, you can get away with not having a six foot three quarterback or six two and a half quarterback and play with a shorter guy um, because he's sitting, you know, he's getting the ball back from the line of scrimmage. It's not like he's at, you know, under center and turns his back mm-hmm. uh, to the line as he's going back to set up. It just, it, and you have that little bit of extra time to sit back in the pocket and read. So I, I think you can get away with the guy, but at the same time, that guy has to be quick. He's got to have lateral agility so he can find those open areas between, you know, the linemen aren't changing. Those guys are still six, five, six, six on both sides of the, of the ball. So you got to be able to see over them or see through them. And, you know, when I did Mayfield, you know, I thought that was one of the strong points of his game in that number one, he played good against, the best competition. Uh, he has accuracy. And when I say accuracy, the first thing I throw out is completion percentage. It's, to me, it's all about ball placement. I mean, yeah, you look at the number, but you know, if the guy's completing 67% of his passes and a lot of those throws are bubble screens, that's not a, a true indicator of what his accuracy is. It's all about ball placement. Where's he putting the ball? He put it in a place where it can't be intercepted how many interceptions does he have, those types of things. But Mayfield had a lot of those strong traits. The only, In my opinion, the only thing he, he really lacked was the ideal height. He was a strong leader. Uh, his players, his teammates believed in him as a leader. He came up with big play time and time again. Uh, you know, if you, he had to get down the field in the last couple of minutes to either get a field goal or a touchdown. More often than not, he was able to do it. And, and I think that's what separates the good quarterbacks from the bad ones. There's a lot of guys, and, and it could be you know, draft analysts and even people that are, are evaluating for teams in the league are looking at the physical traits, the guy's height, his arm strength, whether he can throw a tight ball or not, and they're forgetting about the intangibles. And in my opinion – it's a minimum 50% intangibles. You've got to be instinctive. You've got to be a, a leader. You've got to be a hard worker. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm in Chicago right now, and Mitch Trubisky, if there's one thing he has, and it's just outstanding football character. He wants to be a superb quarterback, and he will do whatever it takes to reach that level. And, you know, when guys have that kind of attitude, even if they're they're missing in, in, in some other areas, they're going to rise above and become good players. Yeah, do you think that Kyler Murray has those traits? I mean, he the way that he comes off in interviews, I think, is kind of kind of uneven. But he's he's a really he's a really young kid, you know, only one year starter. And I mean, what what are your thoughts on Kyler Murray? Well, you know, I I like him, and when I first started watching him. I didn't, I, you know, number one was, I, I, I didn't think he'd be 5'10". I thought he was going to be 
five nine and a half. And so if he was five nine and a half, right away he's three inches shorter than Mayfield because Mayfield was six foot five eighths of an inch, and three inches is a lot. So uh, I had my doubts, but the more you watch, the more you like. Now I, I'm still not a hundred percent sold, and I think if he ends up going number one, he has to succeed. And if he doesn't, the drafting of the of the short quarterback, at least the the sub six foot quarterback, is going to go you know out the window again. You know how many sub six foot quarterbacks are there in the league right now? There's one, Russell Wilson. Drew Brees was an even six foot at the combine when he came out, and and Russell Wilson's five ten and a half. That's the same height as um, Kyler Murray is. Uh, but if he fails, you know, people are going to look at that and say that's one of the reasons. Now, he's got that niftiness with his feet, uh, can slide laterally. He can make plays with his feet, you know, as far as extend plays. But how long is he going to be able to do that? As with any mobile quarterback, you start taking hits in the league and you start slowing mm-hmm. up. And, and the coordinators, the head coach, they don't want you taking those hits. Uh, so, you know, they, they take part of that. They let you play with it earlier in your career, but then they try to take that part out of the offense to keep the guy in the pocket. So I, I think the jury is going to be out until we see exactly what he becomes. We've seen it with Mayfield, but again, there's two and a half inches of height difference there, and, and, and that could be huge once we see Murray playing in the National Football League. So... You know, I, I'm not totally sold. I, I appreciate the traits. I think he's going to be the first guy taken. I would personally would take Haskins as the first quarterback, but, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not doing the picking. So, uh, and, and speaking of Haskins, for the life of me, I can't figure out why he's been getting banged the last couple of weeks. But, you know, yeah. that's what it's like in the media, you know, in, in the weeks leading up to the draft. Yeah, he has been. Uh, it seems like over the last couple of weeks – People have started to say that his uh, that Dwayne Haskins being you know high up in the mock drafts was just a a media creation and not indicative of what the NFL teams actually think. I don't know. It's going to be interesting. I could see him still going you know top seven, maybe like you know Jacksonville or maybe you know Denver or I mean there are teams up there that could use quarterbacks. But I, I feel like at this point, based on the information that we've gotten over the last couple of weeks, that he might like slip to the twenties or, or something. I mean, I, I, I don't have a good feel for where he's going to go in the draft. Um, next question, though, from, we have a loyal listener. Well, let me, can, can, let me yeah, can I say ahead. one go other ahead. thing about this? Because the you go back and, and and I tweeted this out the other day, I think it was, but you know, go back two years ago, and first of all. People in the league aren't saying anything publicly. They never do. It's mm-hmm. the so-called analysts that are saying everything. And, <laughs> and a source told me, well, 90% of that is, is just BS and, and made-up stuff. So we don't know what's true or not true. But go back two years ago. And right about now, two weeks before the draft, there was a ton of analysts saying, no quarterbacks going in the top 10, you know, probably only two are going in the first round. Well, three went in the top 12 and all three of them took their teams 
to the playoffs in year two, and all three of them got to the Pro Bowl. So when, when I see that, and I, I, I sort of compare this year to then because there, there is a lot of debate on, on the overall talent level, I'm going to say, no, there's going to be three or four quarterbacks that are going to go pretty high. Now, personally, I'm not a, uh, a fan of uh, the Missouri quarterback, I, I, Drew Locke, I, to me, and, and I tweeted this out, I, I think he's a combination of, of Blaine Gabbert and Kyle Bowler. And Bowler, you know, came from Cal, and he was this big-armed guy. He could get on his knees and throw a, a tight spiral 75 yards, but he couldn't lead a football team. And, and that was his weak point. And I see Locke as very similar in that, you know, he is not that, that strong leader. He doesn't have those strong intangibles that you want. Now, it could be wrong, obviously, but I think people are going more on the physical traits with him than the intangibles, and, and that's what's needed to win in the league. So we have a, a loyal listener, and she's a, a Giants fan. Her name's Marissa. Um, she had a question about the Giants. You've worked for the Maros, as, as you mentioned, and uh, with Dave Gettleman. How do you think that they're going to address the quarterback position if at all, what's your what's your just general take on what they're doing at quarterback? Do you think that Eli has some left, or you know, has something left in the tank, or you know, what do you think that they might do in this draft? I think they have to take a quarterback. Yeah. Uh, I, I understand what their thinking was last year, passing on the quarterback, taking the running back. And if you have a good offensive line and a, and a good running back, it can help the quarterback. But Eli is not getting any younger. It will be a second year in, in the system uh, this year, and that should help. And, and they've signed some guys in free agency to help with the offensive line. But still, he's like, what, 38 years old or something. Uh, and I, I think his game has regressed over the last few years. Can he win? Yeah, he can win. Can he get you in the playoffs? I'm not so sure. He's going to have to have a real strong supporting cast to get a team, any team, whether it's the Giants or if he's playing somewhere else, get him into the playoffs. Uh, I, I think they have to draft a guy. Um, who that guy is going to be, I don't know. Um, you know, Dave is a best available player type guy and and you can that phrase itself you can almost throw out because your board is even though you can say yeah we took the best player on our board but your board is always set even if it's subconsciously it's it's 90 times or 90 percent of the time it's need related you just have a tendency to push up need players higher on the board than guys that not need positions now whether you know they're they're picking six and 17 they take a defensive player with the with the six, and then try with that second pick to to get a quarterback. I, I think personally, they're going to have to move up from that second pick. That uh, you know, in order to get the guy they want. Now, you know, I've been watching some of the pro days on uh, the NFL Network, and you know, I'm kind of watching to see who's there from the Giants and. Uh, they had the full contingent at Ohio State for Haskins' workout. Mm-hmm. They had just the head coach at the Missouri workout. Chris Merrill wasn't there. And Chris Merrill is a very big part of the evaluation process for the Giants. But then when Jones from Duke had his pro day right in the middle of the owner's meeting, 
Chris left the owners' meetings in Phoenix, flew cross country yeah. to Durham, and was at that pro day. So that's telling to me. So that now, unless they didn't like the workout, and from what I saw, he had an excellent pro day. Now, I'm not a big believer in pro days with quarterbacks because everything is scripted and that they're geared to make the, the player look very good. But the Giants also held a private workout with them. So that tells me a lot. I don't know if they had a private workout with with Locke. Uh, so that being said, and there's a connection between the Duke head coach and the Giants and Eli Manning, there's a, there's a lot of people who think that, that Jones – could be the guy that the Giants want, and if that is the case, I think, um, and from my perspective anyway, they're going to have to move up from that 17 slot in order to get them probably into that 10 to 12, 13th area. Yeah, <clears throat> that's interesting because Daniel Jones is not particularly liked, you know, by just general football observers. I mean, he he's got a low yards per attempt. You know, I think his um, his completion percentage wasn't great, and you know he just he, he when you watch him play, you know a lot a lot of inconsistencies there, but terrible supporting cast. You know, um, right? You got it right yeah. there. His supporting cast was awful. Right. So that's going to be really interesting. And you and you and you're not alone. Uh, people have been saying that he, Daniel Jones is going to go a lot earlier than anyone expects you're saying that he might even go before number 17 and they might even have to trade up from number 17 they do have 12 picks so they've got some ammunition to move up but uh that's that's going to be interesting when, when that happens and there's been a lot of smoke behind the Giants interest in Daniel Jones in general I think it starts with the Cutcliffe connection uh because he coached Eli of course and um, you know, at, at Ole Miss, but uh, so, but on, well, and I think part same, of it yeah. too is is evidence is that when you look at athleticism, size, and all that, Eli and Jones are very, very similar yeah. type players. So that the, there is some similarity to that. Now, could we be throwing a dart at the wall? Absolutely, but uh, you know, I think. But when you add one and one there, you're getting two and not three. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so you you watch football, uh, NFL Network a lot, uh, as you say, and you know you spend a lot of time in the league, and now you're a member of the media, you know, because you write for Pro Football Weekly. You you do a bunch of stuff on um, six seventy the score. You're you're great on there, by the way. I live in Chicago, of course, and uh, it's always a, a treat when when you get to come on and and uh, provide some of your analysis. But what are what are some of the football who are, what are, who are some of the football analysts that you particularly like? Um, and are, are there any football analysts that you particularly like disagree with or branches of analysts, um, you know, just based on your experience and, you know, all, all that you've seen over the years? Well, I, you know, I obviously like guys that have had some affiliation with the league. They've done it for a living. I, you know, I, I worked with uh, Lewis Riddick for a year. I was a, consultant in uh, Philly. Uh, it was Andy Reid's last year. So it was the 212 season. And then and that went up to the 213 draft when Chip Kelly came. And, and 
I got an opportunity to work with Lewis Riddick that year. I think Lewis does a great job at ESPN, uh, very knowledgeable. He was a pro director in the NFL for a long time. So, you know, he knows what he's talking about, and he comes across very well on top of that. Um, I don't know if you want to call Joe Banner an analyst, but, you know, I've known Joe a long time. Um, very, very knowledgeable guy. Uh, I'm not going to say Joe is the best evaluator, but he knows how to listen to the evaluators and, and, and mm-hmm. come to the right decision. And, and obviously his, his connections are really strong around the league. So when, when Joe says something, you have to listen. Uh, Mark Dominic, I like, and I've had Mark Dominic on when I've hosted shows in Chicago. I've had Mark on a few times as a guest. I think Mark does a very good job. Again, he was a general manager in the league. So, um, you know, his perspective is very good. Uh, Jeremiah, Daniel Jeremiah, I've known for a long time since he was a, a scout with the um, Ravens and, and then with the Eagles. And, and uh, I, I think he does an excellent job. Same with Bucky Brooks. Uh, Mel Kuyper, I like a lot. And, uh, you know, I met Mel, God, this goes way back. It was, um, I had just started working for the Giants and back then, so this was before you played in Buffalo, Ross. It was, uh, they used to have a scrimmage one week in the training camp with the Cleveland Browns. And they had the scrimmage at Edinburgh State, which is about midway between Buffalo and Cleveland. And so the first Saturday after camp started, the two teams, it was usually a, like a rookie scrimmage more than anything else, but had the scrimmage at, at, um, at Edinburgh and Ernie Corsi, this goes way back into the, uh, you know, like 85, 86 or something. Ernie was the uh, general manager for the Browns and Ernie's from Baltimore and Mel was a like a protege of, of Ernie's, and Ernie was his mentor. And so Ernie brought Mel to this one scrimmage, Cleveland-Buffalo scrimmage, and I was there actually scouting for the Giants at the scrimmage and, and ended up sitting with him. So I met him, like I said, it was 85, 86, and known him ever since and, and talked to him a lot. I think he does an outstanding job. He's not a guy if you – you know, watch what he tweets or listen to him on television. He's not the type of guy who says, well, you know, I talked to four GMs and they said this. He gives you what his opinion is. And if he's right, he's right. If he's wrong, he's wrong. Some of that opinion comes from people he talks to. Maybe a lot of it does, but he's not trying to qualify his opinion by saying he talked to some fictitious person. And I think that's one of the problems you have with with a lot of these analysts is, is that they you know, use an unnamed source to say, well, you know, three different people told me this, this, this. Well, why don't you just say you like the player because of this? And and that would be a more truthful statement than trying to qualify it by saying, you know, that's somebody else's opinion, which isn't the case because there's one thing I learned all this time I spent in the league. You don't have time to call up draft Nixon and, and Tell them what you like and what you don't like, you know, unless you want to purposely get a lie out there because this is the lying right. season. Yeah, you know, the first year that I ever watched the draft, like intently, that I was old enough to watch the draft intently, was that year when um, the Colts took, I want to say his name was Trev Alberts, like a linebacker, and 
He's a um, defensive end of Nebraska. Defensive end from Nebraska, yeah. And, no, and they were Kuyper probably going to play just, as an outside backer, but yeah. Yeah, just ripped them. Mel Kuyper just ripped them, said, I think he wanted them to take a quarterback, right? Was it Dilfer even? No, Dilfer, I think, was the – and I may be wrong on this. He got into it hot and heavy with Tobin. And, yes, Bill Tobin. Uh, yes. That was – yeah, that was part of what made Mel Kuyper was, was that, right. you know, he was saying the Colts don't understand. And see, he was a Colts fan because the Colts had moved to Baltimore, and that's where, where Mel is from. And so, yeah. they, you know, they had that midnight move from that the Ursays did from Baltimore to Indianapolis and – uh, then in the mid eighties, uh, Bill Tobin was running the, the Indianapolis draft and, and Bill is as old school, great guy, but as old school as, as you can get. And he didn't like having, you know, some young draft Nick on ESPN telling him his pick was good, better, and different. You know, he was going with what he wanted. And so it was, it was made for really interesting TV, but I think that was the Dilfer pick that, Kuiper was really uh, criticizing, but I, I I vaguely remember the thing with Trev Alberts. I remember I was at Trev Alberts' uh, pro day, and he had a mm-hmm. really strong pro day. But he, you know, like a Mike Mamula, his play once he got to the National Football League never he never played up to those numbers he put up at at his pro day. Yeah, cool. Uh, last question. So I know that. You um, have a relationship with Chris Ballard. I think that you gave him his first job or something even, and you've generally been supportive of Ryan Pace as the Bears GM. What what are your thoughts on those two guys, and who do you think should have won uh, executive of the year this past year? Because that was actually a pretty hotly debated or contested uh, award. I think they both did really good jobs. Honestly, I I prefer Ballard a little bit, but – um, what are your general thoughts on on those on those two guys as you know, kind of young, forward-thinking GMs who have really put their stamp on their teams early on? Well, you know, it, it's interesting because they're really—I don't know if I want to say Chris is forward-thinking because Chris is very conservative. Like he had over a hundred million dollars in cap space going into uh, veteran free agency you know, a month ago, three weeks ago, and he still has a lot of money. You know, he is not going to uh, waste money and overpay for a player that he doesn't think is worth it. He'll give them the contract that he thinks is worth it. They watch tape. They put a grade on the guy and, and, you know, veteran players as well as college players. And they're going to pay him that dollar amount. And he's not going to take and waste that money, so to speak, because, fact is half these guys who get big money in veteran free agency don't pan out, you know, and, and end up being a disappointment to the team that signed them. And so he just refuses to get in that situation. Ryan is more aggressive when it comes to free agency. He's had some, some bad ones uh, since he came to uh, Chicago last year. I think he hit a total home run, um, but, you know, the year before he had signed Mike Glennon and then he had some other guys in, in the previous years. But part of it, and I, I don't know if you'll ever get a truthful answer, is that John Fox was there. And John's a friend of mine I've known him for years. But, you know, John was a 
third year veteran in the National Football League working with a, a, a rookie general manager, and I think yeah. John overpowered Brian a little bit, and, and that may have been by design. You know, they, they they wanted, I think the Bears, again, off the record they might say this, but they wanted John to, to teach Ryan uh, the rope, so to speak, but I, I think they're, when they got to that third year that there was problems in, in the direction of where the club was going to go, what type of players they wanted, et cetera. And then obviously yep. Ryan made the decision to fire John after that third year. But I think since John's been gone, except for the Mike Lennon signing, I think that, uh, um, you know, I think Ryan Pace has done really a, a, an excellent job. And as far as the executive of the year, it was a toss up. I mean, Chris doing it his way and not spending a lot of money brought in a lot of good players. He had a great draft, thought his trade uh, would trade down with the Jets last year uh, was excellent uh, because yeah. he, he didn't want to go back too far. When, when you trade back, when you go into a draft and you say, okay, I want to trade down, you always draw, the, draw a line of how far back you want to go. Because there's there's a drop off in the quality player you're going to get, so you got to think to yourself, okay, I can go back two spots, three spots, five spots, wherever it is, but I can't go any further than that because of the drop off in quality, and and you want to stay with that higher quality player, and and I think you know Chris has done a good job with that, uh, using a more conservative approach uh, to free agency and and. He's had success, but part of that is he got his quarterback too, and and Andrew Luck came back, and and you got a quarterback like him, and he's going to help you win games. So uh, there is luck involved, and I and I think um, Ryan, you know, he he put his career on the line when he drafted Mitch Trubisky, and so far he's been correct with that because if he he missed on that pick, you know, his days were going to be numbered as far as. Uh, being a general manager in the league, and and right now I I, I would say he's uh, you know because he's already gotten an extension that uh, he was right on that one. Yeah, one thing that both guys have done um, really well is uh, put an emphasis on the offensive line. I mean, you're talking about two teams. Both these teams, I think, have at worst top ten offensive lines. I think both of them are returning all five starters this year. You know, you see the the Bears, Ryan Pace re-signing Bobby Massey, you know, drafting Cody Whitehair, um, extending Charles Leno, and then the Colts. I mean, you want to talk about a 180 on the offensive line. They were able to do that this past year. I love the the um, getting Mark Lewinsky, their right guard, off waivers. One of the best waiver claims, you know, since I've been covering the NFL. And then, of course, hitting on Quentin Nelson, who, hey, he might have been a little bit easy, but also getting it right with Braden Smith, their right tackle. Um, so, and, and they, they've been very, very successful. And I, I agree at the end of the day, it's a toss up. Uh, you know, again, I kind of preferred Chris Ballard, but I, I wouldn't argue too hard against Ryan Pace. Greg, thanks so much for doing this, man. Uh, just learned a lot, just listening to you talk. And uh, again, you, you got to write that book. And I, I want to help you. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Evan, that was awesome. I knew it would be terrific, terrific stuff there. 
as always. By the way, people can email you questions, Evan. I don't know why they don't. We get questions for Even Money Podcast. We get questions for Ross Tucker Football Podcast. I would think more people would have questions for you on the Fantasy Feast. All you have to do is take advantage of any of our sponsors, like betonline.ag, when you use the promo code PODCAST1 to get that 50% welcome bonus. Whether you're piggybacking off of Fezzik and I's bets as it relates to the NFC and AFC win totals over the last couple of weeks, or maybe you just want to win uh, and then bet on the Masters this weekend. Whatever the case may be, man, oh, man, you need to go ahead and go to betonline.ag and use promo code PODCAST1. And you can ask Evan a question, even if all you do is rate and review the show, on Apple Podcast or whatever your podcast app is, that counts. It all counts. Send it to me with a screenshot, Ross at RossTucker.com, and we are all good. Other than that, I'm stuffed. That was awesome. We're done. Thanks for listening to the Fantasy Feast Podcast. Make sure to also subscribe to the Ross Tucker Football Podcast, Even Money, and the College Draft Podcast, all available on iTunes at RossTucker.com or wherever podcasts can be found.